Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 90, which along with Psalm 87 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, May the 28th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it. We are continuing our look at the prophecy of Ezekiel today in chapter 3, verses 4 to 17. We're also in the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter, let's see, (laughs) chapter 9, verses 37 to 50, and continuing in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. So Ezekiel, remember, has been brought up and taken up in a vision by the Spirit into heaven and given a scroll to eat. And the scroll, then he is is intended to speak the words of God to the people of God that God has continually called a rebellious house and told Ezekiel not to be like them. And so here we go now moving forward with, with the word that's given to him. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you're not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. He said, I'm giving you an easy job in the sense that you're speaking to, to, to your people. You're speaking your language to your people. He says, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you can't understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. Well, there's a little bit of um, history behind that. There, there's a reason to believe that, right? Because Jonah went to another nation. And spoke, and what happened? They listened. But the house of Israel, he says, will not be willing to listen to you, for they're not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. So they're hard-headed, and they have a stubborn heart. Behold, I've made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, have I made your forehead. In in other words, you're going to need this. (laughs) <laughs> you're you're going to need to be as tough as nails. You're going to need to to stand strong here. And that's not going to be an easy thing to do. And so God said, I've done the work necessary to make your forehead as hard as theirs. <clears throat> and so fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they're a rebellious house. He's already told him the same thing. Don't worry about what they say. Don't worry about the looks they give you. It's going to be okay. And they're a rebellious house. Don't go down there with great expectations of changing the world or even getting their attention, per se, to, that they would turn and listen to your message and repent based on what you say. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go to the exiles. So they're already in Babylon to your people. And speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And it's interesting that the way he says that, go to the exiles, to your people. Well, they're God's people. And it's the same kind of language and the same kind of interplay in the way God chooses to refer to them that he does with Moses. Get this people whom you brought up out of Egypt. Here, go to the exiles, to your people. God's distanced himself from his people. They are still his people. There's no denying that. They will always be his people because he has a covenant with them. But at the moment, he's angry with them and they're separated from him because they refuse to listen to him. 
Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the God of the Lord from, from its place. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. Sorry. And it's in similarly, John hears things behind him, like the roar of many waters behind him. And so it was the sound of the wings of the living creatures that they touched one another. Remember, they'd been, they, they had become still during the period in which God spoke because their wings sounded like the voice of many waters. So he's saying that this earthquake, it was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another and the sound of the wheels beside them. We didn't look at that part of Ezekiel 1 for some reason. <clears throat> and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. In other words, he, he's bitter at going from the presence of God down to the people who are sinful, who are rejecting the word of the Lord, who will reject his word from the Lord. There's a bitterness in his spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. He sees the truth about the people. He sees things from God's perspective. But he can't continue to walk in that bitterness of spirit in order to do the job that he's been given to do. He can't do that. I came to the exiles at Tel Abib who were dwelling by the Kabar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling. And I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. So when he's in the presence of the Lord, there's a bitterness in his spirit that rises up. And the bitterness that rises up is based on seeing things from God's perspective. He sees the sinfulness of the people. He sees the hard-headedness of the people and the stubbornness of the heart of the people that in spite of the fact that they're in exile, they're still not receiving the word of the Lord and repenting. They're still not turning to him in spite of all that's come upon them. And so he, he leaves in that bitterness of spirit because he's seen things from God's perspective, through God's eyes, and now he comes to the people and he's overwhelmed for seven days as he sees the distinction between how they live now and Jerusalem. And so he's, he's regaining his perspective as one of the people. They are his people. As God said, go to your people. He's got to align himself with them, as I told you yesterday about the way a prophet works. And so he's aligned himself with God when he was in God's presence, but now he's among the people and he's overwhelmed. He's feeling so many things and trying to sort through all this to say, how do I then speak to these people? As opposed to Job's friends who come and sit with him for a few days and then turn on him <laughs> and become his accuser. Here he comes and he, he just sits and he's overwhelmed. and He doesn't say anything. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So he's not come and not sent to be the accuser of the people. He's there to represent God's accusations against the people in the hope that they will repent and return to him. In the gospel lesson today from Luke 9, yesterday we had transfiguration, and they've come down the mountain now on the next day. A great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Sounds like a grand mal seizure 
Although um, when Will had those seizures, he, he didn't cry out at all. He didn't say anything. I mean, his whole body seized. He's not even aware of what's going on, and he made no sound at all when this happens. It just happens. And so he, he sees this. This this man is his only child. There's a great tenderness that comes in those words that, that he's pleading on behalf of his only child. This is all I have. And, and, and I can't take this anymore. It's nerve-wracking, to say the least. I mean, we only had to put up with it a few times. I can't imagine what this man is dealing with. But it's all he has. It's his only child. And so he comes to Jesus. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do it. The expectation was that, that you're with him. You have the same power as him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. So he's frustrated with his disciples because they're unable to cast this this demon out of this child. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. In another gospel, we're told that they asked, why couldn't we do this? And he said, this kind, kind only comes out with prayer. In other words, what I think what he's saying there is to say that, that you're trying to do it on your own power. Here he's, he's frustrated with them because these are things that he has committed to them they should have been able to do. But, but he points to faithlessness in that point. And, and so what does it mean that they don't have faith? Is this something that they feel like is too great for them to handle? But while they all were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to the disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And it goes back to this, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Um, He says, I want you to understand this. I'm not going to be here forever. Very soon, in fact, I'm going to be gone. I'm about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying because they, they, it was concealed and they weren't able to perceive it because faith was going to be important in the day that Jesus is crucified and then the days following. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying, and I'm sure they were because the last time somebody had undertaken to explain it to him, Peter, Jesus whirled on him and, and said, Get behind me, Satan. So they wanted to not ask this thing because he had already told them that you've been given understanding in ways that these crowds have not. And here they don't understand. They don't understand at all because it doesn't fit with what they already believed about Messiah. They didn't see a dying Messiah. And if you want to to arouse uh, a Jewish rabbi, then point to um, Isaiah 53 and following and tell them, see, that points to a suffering servant. It points to the cross, and it'll, it'll get them aroused. Let's say that. <laughs> they will come back at you hard and fast. And, and these guys knew this. They, they, they'd been taught by the same rabbis. They knew exactly that what's supposed to happen with the Messiah, and it's not supposed to involve suffering and death. And an argument arose then among them as to which of them was the greatest. I mean, seriously? Certainly, Peter, James, and John couldn't have stepped into that, although they could have because they were the ones chosen by Jesus to go up on the mountain. But, but we're now arguing about who's the greatest right after you failed? What difference does it make 
which of you is the greatest. It doesn't make any difference at all because compared to Jesus, you're nothing. Absolutely nothing. And we just proved it. It was just proved to James and Peter and John. And then it was just proved to the rest of the disciples that Jesus is the only thing that truly matters. Greatness only matters with Jesus. Everything else is like running for 50th place, or I mean, I don't even have any idea what place that would be. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So the path to greatness in the kingdom is not the same as the path to greatness in the world. It's the one who's least among them. It's the one who serves. It's the one who's looked down on by other people. It's not the one who, who everybody's looking at, gazing at, and, and waiting to hear what they say. So take heart, all of you. Every one of us should take heart that, that because we don't have huge ministries and we don't have all this other stuff doesn't mean that we're not great in the eyes of God. We need to be able to see things the way Jesus saw them. And here he shows us how to do it. He absolutely does. And so none of us are great. None of us will even even remotely come close to greatness because Jesus put that term so far out of reach that we shouldn't even think of such things. But here what he's telling you is the path, and the path is humility and service. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. I'm sorry, that feels like kind of a non sequitur, John. (laughs) Not really sure why you said that in response to this. Um, But we tried to to stomp on this guy because he's not with us. Jesus said to him, don't stop him for the one who's not against you is for you. So he says it in other places that they can't go talking bad about me tomorrow if they're doing things in my name today. (laughs) In um, (laughs) what we saw, what we see in in the, a book of the Acts, remember, is the seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish priest, who decide they see Paul and Peter and the others casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they, they go and, and try and do the same and say that this Jesus of whom Paul speaks, by his name we adjure you to come out of the man, and it does. They, they, they were successful in that because the, the response was, Paul we know and Jesus we know, but you, we don't have any idea. And they came after him. And, and so it is important that if we're going to use the name of Jesus, that we stand in the name of Jesus as well, that, that we know him, that it's not some magic trick. In the book of Hebrews, remember the, the argument is, is that Jesus exceeds and surpasses anything and anyone else. So in the days of his flesh, he says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Wait a minute. <laughs> but he didn't die. Not ultimately. He experienced the first death, but there's no second death because of Jesus. So his prayer was indeed heard. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Wait, shouldn't that say believe? All who obey him? Yes, because only those who obey truly believe. That's exactly James's argument, but it's not an argument Paul would, would find fault with, and it's certainly not an argument Jesus would find fault with because he constantly says those who believe and do, those who believe and do. 
It's important, but it's so all who obey him includes believing in him. Because if you obey him, then you respect him and you respect his authority and you know who he is. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and this is one of the favorite uh, things to go back to for the writer of Hebrews, and it baffles pretty much everybody. I mean, we, we kind of know what he's talking about because Melchizedek, there's no antecedent for Melchizedek. He just appears out of the blue. We don't have any idea about his parentage. We don't have any idea about his priesthood. We don't know any of those things. But the presumption is that since Abraham paid tithes to him, that he was a priest of the Most High God, and he was also the king of Salem, which is, well, Jerusalem. And so the presumption is that, that he was a representative of Yahweh. And so here, but it's not the Aaronic priesthood. There is no Aaronic priesthood. We're still in Genesis, and that doesn't even come into effect until after Sinai in Exodus 20. So that's the priesthood that the writer of Hebrews points back to and says Jesus is an order, uh, is, a, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it's an enigmatic statement because we know so little about Melchizedek. He said, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. And here he's accusing the people of failing to hear and to understand, which is something that runs through all three of these lessons today. God says they have uh, hard foreheads and stubborn hearts. They won't listen. They will not listen to you because they don't listen to me. And Jesus says the same when he speaks to his disciples. They don't understand either. And so that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, is that we have a lot to say about this stuff, but you're not able to hear it because you're dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So you've abandoned the basics of the gospel that Jesus is all you need. He is it. There is no need to do the sacrificial system and all that kind of stuff. The, the atonement, the sacrificial atonement has been made. There's no reason to do any more sacrifices because it's done. And if you go back and reinstitute those things, what you're saying is Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient. And, and so you've lost sight of the central truth of the gospel, that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and once and for all, period. And so he says, you, you've lost that thread. You should be teaching. You should be far further advanced than that. But, you, but because you've got the elementary principle wrong, then you can't teach at all. He says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the, work of, in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's pointing back and saying that, that you have lost the thread, and I'm concerned for your salvation, which is exactly what he does say, because you've gone back and you've renounced Christ by going back to a sacrificial system when he has provided the once-for-all, fully sufficient sacrifice for sins of the whole world. And we know that his sacrifice was accepted because God resurrected him from the dead. It's not difficult I mean, we just need to persevere in that faith and not try and do it yourself it. Because that's always the temptation is a do-it-yourself religion. And if you're thinking today that, that I hope I'm good enough, the answer is you're not. But Jesus was. And his righteousness that is sufficient, good enough, <laughs> is imputed to you through faith in his sacrifice, his resurrection, his ascension. 